Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. The 10th Annual Economic Freedom of the World Report for 2006, released by the Cato Institute in conjunction with the Fraser Institute, concluded that economic freedom is the single most important factor in economic development for poor countries, more critical even than political freedom or foreign aid. The author, Florida State University Professor of Economics James Courtney, is our guest today. What indicators do you use to arrive at the data in this report? Actually, there are 38 different components that enter into the Economic Freedom of the World Report Index, and the indicators are by and large things about whether or not people are free to use voluntary exchange, free to enter into occupations and compete with each other, and the security of property rights. The index is divided into five areas, and those five areas are, first of all, size of government, and the kinds of components we would look at there would be like government consumption as a share of total consumption or government expenditure type of variable. We would also look at transfer payments as a share of GDP and other indicators of size of government. The second major area is legal structure and security of property rights, and we use variables there about the even-handedness of the legal system and its ability to enforce contracts and provide for secure property rights. The third is access to sound money, and it's basically whether money is very important in trade. If you don't have sound money, that it reduces your ability to trade. And we look at things like variation in the inflation rate and access to using alternative currencies. Fourth is freedom to trade with foreigners. And we consider restrictions like tariffs. We consider black market exchange rates, restrictions upon capital movements, things that interfere with your ability to trade with foreigners. And finally, there's regulation of credit, labor, and business activities. And we consider variables that reduce, for example, things like price controls, restrictions upon ability to hire workers or dismiss workers, start a business. Those would be the kinds of components that would be entering into the index. Now, you've researched and written the annual Economic Freedom of the World Report since as far back as 1996. What trends have you seen emerge over the last quarter century? Well, actually, in some areas, there has been some pretty significant movements toward economic freedom. For example, there's been a very decided reduction in the number of nations that levy very high marginal tax rates. More than 60 countries levied marginal tax rates, had their highest marginal tax rate of 60% or more in 1980. Most recently, that's down to two. A number of countries worldwide have recognized that high marginal tax rates are counterproductive. We've also, since 1980, found a big increase in the sort of access to sound money, monetary stability. That area has experienced a substantial improvement. And also, there have been improvements in fewer restrictions in the international trade area, so greater freedom to trade with foreigners. All this sort of adds up that the entire index, the average of all the countries in the index that were rated during this period, has increased about a point between 1980 and 2004. According to your research, would you say that the poverty trap exists or is a myth? Well, I think the reason why nations are poor is because they get the institutions and policies wrong. And if, in fact, you get the institutions and policies right, you can experience economic growth and achieve high income levels. For example, if you look at countries that have the same kind of economic freedom rating, you'll find that low-income countries, even the lowest-income countries, actually grow more rapidly than high-income countries. 
But the problem is that a large set of countries basically have lots of restrictions upon economic freedom. And as a result, they have lower incomes, their economies are stagnating, and they will continue to stagnate as long as that's the case. For example, the countries in the top quartile of the Economic Freedom Index during the 1990 to 2004 period, they grew at an annual rate in excess of 2%. Their aggregate income per person grew about 40% during that period of time. In contrast, the countries in the bottom quartile of economic freedom actually stagnated. Their growth rate was 0.1%. So you had a widening of the gap. But the reason why you had the widening of the gap is the low-income countries, it's not that they were caught in a poverty trap, but they followed policies that are inconsistent with economic freedom and therefore inconsistent with economic progress. And what are those policies that most impede nations from making economic progress? Boy, if you think of why it is that we are able to achieve high income levels, it has a lot to do with being able to trade, experience gains from uh, division of labor, specialization, adoption of mass production techniques, discovery of better ways of doing things, and all these require trade. So when you put up these impediments to trade, it reduces the ability of countries to realize those gains from trade. So when we talked about the index, we talked about the restrictions upon international trade. But a lot of the regulatory components of the index are actually restrictions upon domestic trade. Plus, the legal structure is very important. If you don't have a legal structure that you can count on to provide for secure property rights and to enforce contracts, that is an impediment to trade. So it's a deterrent to countries realizing these gains as the result of the specialization, economies of scale, and figuring out better ways of doing things. Now, in addition to that, investment is an important element of growing and achieving higher income levels. And again, when your legal system restricts trade and when it does not provide for secure property rights, that investment will flow away from those countries and move toward countries that have greater security of property rights and better legal systems and fewer trade restrictions. Your report demonstrates how economic freedom leads to success in a variety of development indicators. Looking at a country such as Singapore, for example, we see a highly developed nation, a free market economy with important trade ties, and a corruption-free government, but we might also conclude that political freedom is the price Singapore paid for its prosperity. Well, I think that that would be a mistaken conclusion to draw, that we do find that there are a few countries that have substantial amounts of economic freedom and relatively little amount of political freedom. And interesting, you talked about Singapore. Actually, Hong Kong would be an even more vivid example, that Hong Kong has not had what we would call political freedom for, what, 150 years. But yet it's had economic freedom. I think economic freedom is probably the most underrated economic indicator, and not only economic but political indicator. Economic freedom is what touches all of our lives. It's far more important to me to be able to trade with whom I would like, to be able to start a business, to be able to engage in economic activity and employ people and work for other people. That's far more important to me than who I can vote for. Now, I don't want to minimize the importance of political democracy, but let me say I think it's greatly overrated that we've made a big mistake by attempting to essentially sell the idea that, hey, if you have political democracy, you're going to be prosperous and peaceful. If that were true, for example, that political democracy leads to economic progress, India would be a very rich country. India has had political democracy for a long period of time. And it would also be true that Hong Kong would be a very poor country because it has not had much political freedom for an extended period of time. 
So economic freedom is really what provides the foundation for economic progress, but not only economic progress, but also it provides the foundation for peace. And I think we've really gone awry. Our report last year, for example, the theme chapter was by Eric Grosky of Columbia University, and he showed that actually countries that had more economic freedom were 50 times more likely to be peaceful with their neighbors and have peaceful interaction in terms of their foreign policy than countries that had very little economic freedom. Oh, I just wish that we in the United States were attempting to sell economic freedom as vigorously as we're attempting to sell democracy, and we would have a much more peaceful and a much more prosperous world if that were the case. Now let's turn our attention briefly to Africa. African nations continue their downward trend in almost every development indicator. Can they be helped? Well, again, they can be helped, but the steps that they need to take to help themselves are to improve their institutional arrangements. When you look at African countries, for example, Botswana is the freest economy in Africa. It's also the most prosperous economy in Africa. Mauritius is a relatively free economy in Africa. It's also prosperous. The countries at the bottom quartile of the Economic Freedom of the World Index, most of them are African, and the ones that are not African are generally Latin American. And as long as they continue to have these institutional arrangements, they will continue to stagnate. So the way to bring prosperity to Africa is to improve their institutional arrangements. And to a large extent, what we need to do is be an example of that in terms of our own policies and what people will observe, and to assist people in Africa as well as other places around the world who are, in fact, working to establish economic policies and institutions more consistent with economic freedom. The latest New York Review of Books features an essay by Nicholas Kristof in which he argues that some forms of aid are invaluable components for creating the preconditions necessary for development. How would you say economic freedom compares with foreign aid as a means of helping poor nations prosper? Well, economic freedom is far more important than foreign aid. We've gone down the foreign aid path once before. The current emphasis upon the Millennium Goals is a replay of the 1950s and 1960s when the argument was presented, hey, if these countries, we just gave them a little aid, they would get investment in various kinds of infrastructure and grow rapidly. And, of course, we went down that route, and it didn't happen. Bill Easterly's theme chapter in this year's index really tackles that point, and he shows that economic freedom, even for the poorest countries in the world, provides the foundation for growth and that poor countries will, in fact, grow rapidly when they get the institutions right, and that foreign aid is largely ineffective. It's just going to be tragic if we replay the failures of the 1950s and 1960s, because again, we will raise hope, and the result will be failure. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.